Hey, welcome to night school, a.k.a. kindergarten. Night kindergarten. How come there's no night kindergarten? You know, we're one of these nocturnal families. And uh, you've heard of blended families? Well, we're a nocturnal family, and there's no night kindergarten classes available for my kid. You know, we tried Waldorf, and that didn't work because it, you know, it just wasn't late enough in the evening. Uh, but uh, night kindergarten, that's where we're at now on this here Saturday afternoon. And it's important, you know, I bring up the days of the week a lot, but think about how powerful days of the week are. Think about how much impact that has on you, regardless of your schedule, regardless of any of that, just the simple fact that the day colors everything. It gives you this set of rules you're supposed to follow uh, for that day. Because uh, even if your schedule's different, even if someone's schedule's different than yours, it doesn't really matter because everybody knows what day of the week it is and what that day means. But what I'm thinking about today, aside from days of the week, which we're all thinking about, and it's nice when you actually genuinely forget. Here I was, I was going to go branch into the actual thing I want to talk about, but I can't stop talking about days of the week. But it's funny how when you actually legitimately forget what day of the week it is, that's crazy. It's like, whoa, I actually, I have no way to contextual, uh, contextualize this day. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what day it is, you know, and that, that's a cool feeling. It's a feeling of neutrality almost. It's like a reset button. It's like a certain part of your existence shifts when you don't know what day of the week it is. Uh, and I've been thinking today, though, about, you know, one of my life goals is uh, to create more than I destroy and if I barely break even, if I barely maintain a balance, that's good enough. But I question that too, because sometimes creating is destroying. Profound, I know. Creating is destroying. But a great example is, well, let me just say, like, when creation takes away from the neutral balance of things. And, you know, if anybody's ever, like, picked up an acoustic guitar and, and made you listen to Elliot Smith covers... That's a great example. That person thinks that they're offering the world a gift. They are, they are giving you something, but really they're taking away from you. They're actually destroying some sort of natural balance, some sort of, uh, you know, just peace that you may or may not have had, but was nonetheless possible in that neutral area. But someone decided that, I, hey, I'm a creative person, so I'm going to listen to this. Because I'm just, I'm sending sweet melodies out into the world, sad melodies, really. Um, I'm going to make, I'm going to bring you down. Uh, but it's a great example, though, of, of the way that being creative can actually take away. It's almost like if you're witnessing something beautiful out in the world, someone commenting on it takes it down a notch. You know, and you have to learn how to deal with that, to not let that ruin things for you. Uh, as long as you're not held hostage by an acoustic guitar-toting teenager. Um, uh, but uh, it's one of those things where sometimes it's like we get tricked, especially as creative people, that we are somehow, by creating, we are somehow just benefiting the world. Even if it's like some sort of negative expression, because then it's like, well, it's it's catharsis. It's, you know, it's helping you with those negative feelings or whatever. Uh, but it's all very indulgent, self-indulgent, and just indulgent in general. General indulgence. That's a new category. That's a new genre. General indulgence. Um, it's also what they, it's, it's also what we called my uh, 
my commander in boot camp, general indulgence. Um, but yeah, no, there's this idea that as creative people, the act of creating is somehow benefiting the world. Oh, uh, I'm adding something to the world. And we now live in this age where the proliferation, oversaturation of creative material is definitely at its peak. Uh, and, and maybe it's going to continue to go higher and higher. Maybe that peak's going to go higher and higher. And I'm glad that people can do that. I'm glad that people can express themselves. But it's also something that you kind of have to kind of have to do war with that part of yourself because I recognize many times in my life where what I think is necessary, what I think is you know important to me at least, the idea of creating something or saying something or do, doing anything making any kind of decision that affects a situation, I don't know. It, I think you get the idea of the broad strokes of, of what creativity can mean or creating something, even outside of art, even outside of any kind of like traditionally, quote unquote, creative context. The idea of the world needs something and I'm offering it. It could be scientific innovation, too. It could be like, well, here's this new thing I figured out how to do and it's going to change the world. We need to know this. But when that takes away from some sort of natural balance and uh, it's... Similar to the idea of gift-giving, where gift-giving can be such a burden, uh, both the idea of you are supposed to give somebody something, but you can't think of anything, and if you don't give it to them, you feel like it's this destructive act. You know, I didn't give you a gift. It's, it's mean, you know? It's like, you're a mean person because you didn't give me a gift for my birthday. But there's actually that weird form of destruction that leads into that, where it's like, you're like beating yourself up over the fact that you don't know what to give somebody or you can't afford to give somebody something. It's, it's just, it's strange. And then on the other side, when you receive gifts, the burden of that, because it's sometimes you'll receive something and it's just very important to you. It's a very thoughtful gift. And I was raised to, I was raised with the guideline, you know, if somebody gives you something, you always thank them, you always accept it. If it's something you already have, you don't tell them that. You know, you go file it away, you return to the store, whatever else, but you don't tell them that. Uh, but giving someone a gift uh, does burden them. You know, it, it it forces them to, you know, it forces them to go through the motions of, you know, gratitude and all that, whether it's true or not. And I'm always grateful for any time someone intends to give me something. That, you know, it, it, you really do have to look at, like, what their intention is. And, uh, but it's also, I think if you're a gift giver, you also have to consider what you're doing to that person and whether they really need that and whether you're actually creating a dilemma for them that doesn't need to exist simply because you want to feel good about yourself for doing something. And it's very similar to what I was saying about the guitar. Someone who's learned how to cover Elliot Smith songs and has decided their friends just need that. Their acquaintances just need that. That person thinks they are giving someone a gift, but they're really burdening that person immensely. But if that person's important to you, if your friend, you know, is, uh, is really excited about learning this music, you don't want to take that away from them either. So part of that balance is if someone is important to you, you do have to just put up with it. Uh, and up to a point, maybe. It's definitely up to a point. Uh, you don't just want to deal with that all the time. Uh, but there's a, you know, it's, it's a, I don't, I don't want to say it's treacherous, but it's a, 
there's a bit of a struggle, you know, there's a struggle in that when someone's important to you and something is important to them, you want to show some sort of support uh, toward that, whatever it is they're doing, whether it's, you know, whether, whether it's important for that person to play music, whether it's important for that person to feel generous and be generous, it doesn't really make a difference. You know, if that person's important to you, you want to validate them. But they should also keep themselves in check. And that's one of the basic rules of life is that you have to keep yourself in check. And if you keep yourself in check, your feelings are going to get way less hurt when someone else tries to put you in check because you've already been there. It's what I've been saying lately about seeing yourself under a very harsh light. If you can do that without just beating yourself up, without whipping, flagellating yourself, uh, which doesn't really sound like what it is. Saying flagellating yourself sounds uh, like something else. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as long as you're not taking it that far, you're basically preparing yourself. You know, you're aware of the chinks in your own armor, so when someone else brings it up, it, it's not painful. Or at least, even if it's painful, it's like you were at least prepared for that pain. Prepared for pain. Are you prepared for pain? Um... I don't even know where the chinks in my own armor are. Uh, you got me in the armpit. I like those things on armor. They're like the little circles that protect your armpits. It's a really unappreciated part of armor, the armpit protectors, because it's important. You don't want to get an arrow in your armpit, a sword in your armpit. You got nodes there. You got lymph nodes in your armpits you got to protect. Your nodes, that's what those cir circular armor things are. They're uh, protecting your nodes, your node protectors. You know, back in my day, we had node protectors, not pocket protectors. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, you want to be prepared for what someone could potentially say to you. You want to be able to look yourself in the mirror and know what's potentially coming down the road. Uh, so, you know, if you are someone who, you know, it, it needs to throw things out into the world, you know, who, who feels like that's your job, that's your duty to throw things out there, to create. And uh, you should also be aware of the fact that not everybody is receptive, whether they're people you know or don't know, not everybody's going to be receptive to that. And I had an experience years back where there's a guy I've known uh, through music, art, whatever mix of that you want to call it. Um, and uh, he had ordered some stuff from me. And this is a friend of mine and kind of a curmudgeon, but a very insightful person who, whose opinion I greatly respect. And he had ordered some stuff from me and I, I was very busy. So it took me a while to send him his package and as a result, you know, I did, I made the classic move of, you know, he won't be as mad about the delay if I throw in a couple extras. I'll throw in a couple freebies. I'm like a, a Comcast employee. It's like, not only will you get the basic set of channels, but, you know, just because you're talking to me, I'll give you an extra 10 channels. I'll give you uh, NFL Network and, and Showtime the Spanish version of Showtime, just because you came in right now. You know, it's that sort of mentality when you have when you have that sense of guilt, like, oh, I, I didn't send it. It took me a month to send that package. So I threw in a couple extras, and I remember he emailed me, and he was like, hey, you know, like, I appreciated, he appreciated what I did, but he was like, I didn't ask for those extra things. And I can't remember remember exactly how he put it. But my initial gut response was to be like, 
how dare you? You know, how dare you comment on these free things and tell me you didn't want these free things that I was only sending you out of guilt because I took a while to send your package. But, you know, after knowing this guy, I think it helped that I knew him. I thought about it and it really, it was pretty, it was an epiphany really. I was like, you know what? He's right. I don't know how much space he has. I don't know how much stuff he wants to deal with. Because when you give someone something that they didn't ask for, it's essentially saying, deal with this. It's like throwing a basketball at someone, you know? And it's like, I, you know, I wasn't even playing in the game, you know? Uh, I don't even like basketball. You know, it's like that kind of thing. It's like, just like, think fast. That's kind of what it is. It's like, think fast. Here's a gift. And, you know, sometimes someone will give you a really thoughtful gift that they put a lot of time into, and you really don't want it. And then other times, I know this, especially for me, like I'll be hanging out with people and I'll just like see some like random object in their house or, or they'll just, they'll have found some random object and they'll, they'll just be like, you want this? And they'll be like, yeah. And then that ends up being like a treasured item to me. Like, like I have a little, uh, I have a couple little shelves, uh, but one shelf in particular of an assortment of items that just have some sort of strange significance to me. I wouldn't even really be able to, to define it, and that's why they are important to me, because they're, they're these undefinable little objects, and they're not even necessarily from important people in my life. Uh, I can, you know, one's like a weird crystal thing that like somebody at a party randomly gave to me, you know, years ago. And it's just, who knew that that would be on display in my house? And it's not, not like a crystal. It's one of those black crystals. I don't know what that's called. I don't, I don't know what, they're all rocks to me. <laughs> they're all rocks to me. But it was just, it, it was a nice little thing. And I, I just, I held on to it and it happens to be on display. Um, but so you really can't decide what's important and what's not. And sometimes those very impulsive spur of the moment gifts are the ones that matter the most. But going back to my friend, he, you know, him saying that, him telling me essentially you overstepped your bounds by sending me extra stuff. And it, yeah, there could be any number of reasons. It could be, you know, he doesn't have as much physical space in his house as he, as he would like and like two extra records or whatever else. You know, that's, that takes up space. That's a couple inches you know, in a limited area, or it could be completely mental. It could be a mental space thing. It could be, a, and that's the biggest issue for me is like, it's about mental space. Suddenly you, you think you have everything all right. You think you have everything in your head arranged. And then someone's like, here's another thing you have to deal with. Here's another thing that you have to decide. You have to decide whether this is important and go through the motions of it and all of that. And that's not to say that I don't love receiving gifts because I do. I really do. And if somebody's listening to this and they're preparing a gift for me, I would say, give it to me, baby. Give me that gift. Give me them gifts. Anybody have any gifts for me? Anybody have any gifts? He just comes around asking for gifts. He's looking for handouts. But it was really, it was an epiphany for me when that friend, you know, sort of called me out. And that's a great example, too, of, of my intentions were not pure. My intention, I was overcompensating for the fact that I had, even if I had a justification for delaying that package, it still was coming from a place of guilt, and that's never a good place to be coming from, especially when you're giving gifts. I remember, like, a, an ex-girlfriend, and I got in a fight, and uh, I, I brought a, uh, like, a bubble tea into her work the next day, and it was just awkward, you know. I thought that that would, <laughs> I thought that would help, man. Uh, but really, it was just kind of like this weird. I, I had this sense of guilt, um, so I, I bought a bubble tea and brought it into her work, which is nice on its own. But when you're doing that out of some weird intention, 
it's more of a destructive act. You know, you're giving somebody something, but it's coming from a place of, it's coming from an unsettling place. And what's unsettling is often destructive. And so sometimes you're taking away from, you're you're taking, you're sucking breathing room out of a situation. It's like you're sucking oxygen out of, out of a room or something when you do that. And it's something I battle with a lot because I'm somebody who is constantly struggling with my desire to express myself in a number of ways. And I don't want to make this all about me. Um, I don't want to make this all about me, but it is obviously, you know, my experience and my things I've learned just, you know, about the dynamics between people and, you know, learning about myself as well. Uh... Who knew that all this stuff uh, would come back to just me talking about me? But uh, no, it, it's it's a weird thing where you feel like you feel like you we have this very like straight uh, straight definition of what creativity is, what creating is, what you know taking away is, and it's even, you can even just go back to life itself, where you know having a child is the ultimate form of creativity. You're creating a life. And it's bizarre to think about the fact that all of the components that make a human being are inside man and woman, and they come together in this small way and lead to this, to this. That's bizarre to think about. And it's, you know, one of the most phenomenal forms of creativity out there is procreation, hence the word creation. But that's not always good either. You know, it's not always good to have a child. It's not always good to send someone new out in the world, especially if everything going on around that is not good. And and I'm not somebody who will ever tell someone not to procreate. I'm not one of these people who's anti-procreation, anti-child. And I think that's actually one of the more sick pathological developments in Western society, this anti-child attitude, this anti-procreation attitude. As someone who doesn't have a goal, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know how I feel about myself having a child at this point. I've got a, a little bit more time to really consider it. It's not something I want to do, but it's also not something that I've ruled out, uh, which feels right. I, I'm really happy with that feeling, to be honest. I'm happy with not knowing what exactly I want to do. And I find it really weird when people like put their foot down and they're just like, I'm not going to do it. And after a certain point of time, yeah, you know, if you get old enough, you're not going to do it. But uh, being in your 20s or 30s and making that decision, it's probably smart. It's probably smart to have like some sort of philosophical approach to it rather than just being like, oops, got a kid. But I've also known people who had no intention of having children who did and it's been nothing but a blessing to their life I can see that they're a great parent and it's just it's like something just everything all like fell into place for them the second they had a child and I've heard that story over and over again and it's impressive to me and that's a great example of you know it it wasn't planned you know it wasn't planned but it it made sense once it happened and a lot of creativity is that way It's, it's in the same way that you know, some of my favorite gifts are something that somebody was just like, oh, yeah, I found this thing today. You want it? I'd be like, yeah. You know, sometimes it's that that it just makes sense. And there's no way you could quantify that. There's no way you could measure it. There's no way you could break it down. It just makes sense. And I think it's the same thing for something as grand as giving life. Um, 
But yeah, as I said, though, it's, that's not always true. It's not like just having a child is this profound creative act. Sometimes it's actually a, a dark thing. Sometimes it's it's very, uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to get into that. I think we, we've all, we know the examples out in the world. We meet the people who are the product of that sort of situation. And it's often not good. But it's not, you know, but the, once again, you can't quantify or measure that either. I mean, some people can be born under horrible circumstances and be the absolute best people you'll ever meet. And often they are. People who have overcome some kind of struggle uh, are... Yes, have some of the best character you'll ever meet, whereas some of the people who were born under the perfect circumstances, quote-unquote, wealthy family, every opportunity available, they end up being the worst person. You hear about affluenza, that buzzword from a few years ago, affluenza. Um, uh, But, uh, yeah, so you really can't quantify or measure it. It just, you know it when you see it, you know it when you feel it. And I do find myself, you know, struggling with my own desire to create. Uh, And as someone who, as I said, has a general goal of wanting to create more than I destroy. And at best, I feel like I'll be able to achieve some sort of balance or maybe just a hair above neutral. But who am I to want to offset neutrality at all? I think that's where my dilemma comes in, where I'm like, who am I to want to offset that just natural balance or neutrality? Who is to say that everything I do isn't some equivalent to the guy with the acoustic guitar forcing you to hear Elliot Smith's songs? You know, uh, I very well could make a lot of people feel that way without knowing. But I think there's a difference between directly approaching somebody and saying, listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to me strum these chords. Listen to me. Hey, want to hear something really depressing? Um, you know, uh, there's a difference between that and say, I don't know, I have guilt about doing a podcast. I have a lot of guilt about doing a show. The fact that I have this impulsive need to sit down and talk and share it and say, listen to me. Listen to me talk. I, I have guilt about that. Not some horrible, debilitating guilt. Obviously, it's not debilitating if I'm doing it. Uh, but it is something I contend with, and I'm cool. I'm, I'm happy that it's a, it, that it, there's some conflict there. I think the things that I value the most almost always have some sort of conflict. And uh, that's a great example. If that conflict uh, you know, doesn't destroy more than it creates, you know, that's okay with me. If that conflict leads to just some sort of balance or neutrality, that's enough for me. And it really goes back to emotion itself and feel, you know, how you feel. And for years now, uh, I've gotten a lot happier once I realized that happiness isn't a goal of mine. Once I accepted that happiness wasn't a goal, I always knew that happiness wasn't something that was as achievable for me as it might be other people. Uh, It wasn't as readily available. And as a result, I thought, well, I'm just going to be a critic. I'm going to be a curmudgeon and a critic, and I'll just embrace that. I'm going to be a hater. I'm going to I'm going to get pathological about it. I'll just you know, that's just who I am. It's just who I am. I tell it like it is. I tell it like it is. You know, it's I got into that sort of mindset and uh and I recognize that's inescapable. I will always have the capacity to be that way. Um that's that's a part of me. Uh but when I accepted that, you know, oh, I'm not somebody who 
really even wants happiness. You know, once I realized that, that was crazy because you're told like joy and happiness, joy and happiness. How much joy? Are you happy? How's your son? Is he happy? I think he's happy. Um, you know, it's, it's that sort of thinking where it's like, once I realized that not only is happiness not as readily available to me for whatever reason, whether it's biological, mental, whether it's circumstantial, you know, I've had a really good life too. So that that's a factor where it's like, oh, happiness isn't as readily available to me, yet I've had a, you know, a pretty solid foundation. You know, I have a lot of great examples in my family and friends of people who I just genuinely respect and... Uh, and I enjoy them, and I enjoy my life. So what? how can I enjoy life if I'm not happy or pursuing happiness? And accepting that that wasn't a priority for me was a major burden lifted off of me. And when I realized that, oh, I can just hope for a neutral day. I can hope for a day where I don't sink down too low, and I don't go up too high. And if I'm in that sort of middle area, you know, I can go up to happiness at any time. Something can make me happy, and it might be temporary, but I, if I fall back down, I just fall back down to this sort of neutrality. And if I dip down, if I dip down to a more depressed or angry state, it's not that hard to get back up to neutral. So setting neutral as your goal, neutral as your sense of normal, will actually give you greater access to happiness. And it'll give you greater access, too, to your negative emotions, but I, I feel like in a healthier way. You know, I, I feel like it, it makes them, it makes the path that much more clear because you're not jumping from this horrible negative state to this really high state, like some sort of manic depressive uh, shift. You're actually, you know, just experiencing these much smaller shifts, these much gra more gradual shifts. And if you just try to hang out in the middle, not that you'll be able to stay there, but if you just try to hang out there, your life and your emotions and everything that make you who you are is a lot more manageable. And I think the same is true for, you know, what you put out into the world or what you don't put out into the world for that matter. I, I believe that balance between creativity and destruction is just like the balance between happiness and misery or anger or whatever else you want to call it. Uh, there's, how dare you compare misery to anger? They're entirely different. Um, but it is one of those things where, you know, you look at that and you're like, okay, you know, as soon as I stopped pursuing that thing that seemed unobtainable, it became that much easier to access. And in the times where I'm not able to access it, I'm not as upset about it. So it's funny how that unfolds, how you figure that out. And that's not to say that, you know, you figured it out forever or that I've figured it out, figured it out forever. God knows I haven't. Uh, just like I haven't figured out this, you know, the struggle between, you know, just wanting to put stuff out in the world and, but yet I'm not comfortable not doing that. And sometimes I'll go through a phase, like I, I hurt my arm a little while ago and I wasn't able to like lift weights and it also wasn't a good idea to draw or really do anything. And so I just made a decision. I was like, I'm not going to do anything creative. I'm going to spend about a month, three weeks to a month, and of course I was still able to do a few things here and there, but it just, it became less of a priority uh, to be creative, and it's like, there's this part of me that feels like, oh, if I've made a decision to not be creative, maybe I'll lose it forever. 
if I let that momentum just drop, you know, maybe I, I will never build back up to it. And sure enough, you know, a month goes by and my arm is better and at least a little bit better. And, and I'm like, oh, I'm bursting with ideas. I didn't lose anything. And that's sort of the dilemma, too, of, uh, you know, when you're working toward that sort of neutrality, because once I accepted that, you know, happiness wasn't obtainable, or not, not, not that it wasn't obtainable, but that it wasn't a priority. My priority wasn't obtaining happiness. Interestingly, on the other side, it's not like the negativity got stronger. The negativity actually got weaker. And strangely enough, the negativity became less of a priority too. It wasn't like I said, I give up on trying to be happy. That means I'm just going to be like a nasty piece of shit all the time. My desire to, or whatever led me toward my nasty side actually became weaker. Like what, you know, that, that sensation became weaker because that neutrality took over, uh, that, that gray area. And it's not like I, you know, I sometimes criticize black and white thinking and all that, but you know, having a sense of good and evil and right and wrong is important. It doesn't mean that that's everything. It doesn't mean there's no spectrum in between those things. And you're more likely to fall into that spectrum than not. Uh, but you can recognize that black and white exist and the gray area in between them. It's a weird thing people do. And I hear it a lot these days in different forms. It doesn't, not necessarily this language, but where people are like, well, just accept that everything has a gray area. Everything's morally ambiguous. Uh, every hero is also an anti-hero. Um, you know, there's that. And there's this idea that because we recognize gray areas, we somehow think that black and white no longer exist. And it's like, those are just the extremes. Those are the extreme shades on each side. But that doesn't mean, you know, just because you, you recognize black and white where you see it doesn't mean that the gray area doesn't exist in between. And just because you recognize the gray area doesn't mean the extremes on each end of the spectrum aren't black and white. So you have to accept all of those, you know, accept the idea that black and white exist and the gray area in between. Your brain is more than capable of processing that. Your brain is more than capable of understanding that there are some absolutes and there are some ambiguities and they blend into each other. You know, it's not that hard to understand. Uh, there are visual representations of it. And it's why the yin-yang symbol is flawed. It's why the yin-yang symbol is flawed, because they show that black and white, which is very real. Uh, but they don't show the gray area, the trench. Gray is the trench between black and white, and uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, never mind. Never mind. I won't get into that. I won't get into that, but it's something you have to recognize. It's something you have to recognize is that gray area exists as well as the absolutes, as well as the black and white. Um, and if you choose gray as a goal, you know, I think it's very easy then to not value the black or the white or the creative and the destructive. It's easy to think like, oh, well, gray area is actually the only thing that matters. Uh, being neutral is the only thing that matters. And you don't want to be neutral in life to the point where the ups and downs have no impact on you or they have no value either. In that same way that, like, I can't just sit there and not do anything forever. I could do that, you know, if I, you know, just maintained, you know, the bait, my, my health and, you know, did my best to just work on myself. I could easily just sit in that gray area of never making anything and never taking anything. 
Uh, but I think you, as a human being, I want to explore all of the above. But you have to take, you have to rest when you can. You have to rest when you can. And I think that neutral area is the resting zone. Because it doesn't provoke you. You know, when you're in that zone, you're, you don't feel, you don't feel provoked and you don't feel like provoking. And I think that's where I feel guilt about expressing myself. That's where I feel guilt about being creative, where I feel like I'm provoking. I feel like I'm poking something. I feel like I'm jabbing something. Even if it's something that is totally, you know, I think about this show, the guilt I feel for doing a podcast. Uh, <laughs> you've heard of Catholic guilt. Well, this is podcast guilt. Um, but, uh, you know, you think about the guilt I feel for doing a podcast and, this is a show I do where you have to try to listen to this. You have to go out of your way to listen to this. Yet there's probably someone I know out there who doesn't like that I do it or they don't like what I say, even though it's voluntary. You know, I've actually I've received feedback before from people I know. Uh, so this isn't something I'm just making up. This isn't some paranoid fantasy. I've received feedback from more than one person challenging things I say, which I don't mind at all. I love feedback of any kind. But a couple times I've been misinterpreted or, you know, something I said has been distorted by someone I know or they just, something about it, maybe even just me doing it put them off. Uh, this has happened three or four times in the six years I've been doing this, so not a, a huge amount, but enough to where I know that sometimes it rubs people the wrong way, that I talk into a mic and you have to go out of your way to listen to it. And that's just the reality is that somebody is going to not like what you're doing when you're creating in the same way that, you know, somebody's going to not like your Elliott Smith covers outside of, uh, I don't know, wherever, wherever it is you, you're holding them hostage, the park, um, uh, in the same way that, you know, someone's not going to necessarily like that. Whereas if, it's a, if, if a girl has a crush on a guy who, you know, does Elliott Smith covers, uh, you know, maybe she's going to love it. That's his target audience, but, you know, it's not me. I'm not going to want to hear that. Uh, so, uh, and I don't know why I've decided to use Elliot Smith as an example. It was just, it was something that came to mind a few days ago. Uh, I, I saw something and I was just like, oh yeah, that's, that's a thing. It's a thing people do. For some reason, it's a thing people do. Is that a thing people do? Is that, is that a, a thing people do, a creative act? Uh, but no, in, in the same way that that's, that's a thing, you know, you don't ever want someone to hold you hostage, you know, and it'd be different if I was like driving around town with loudspeakers playing my own podcast to people. Uh, so I can't feel too guilty if I just have this little corner of, a, of the digital world where you can hear me talk. I can't feel too guilty about that, but my nature is just to feel some sense of guilt. Um. And that's the thing, too, like even just really famous podcasts, there's a lot of free material on the Internet. There's so much, you know, you're paying for your Internet connection, but you can listen to all these well-known podcasts for free. And I, if you look at the comments, though, people complain. They're going out of their way to listen to this podcast, and all they do is complain about this free service. And if a change is made to that podcast, you'll see even more complaints. So there's, there's this sense of entitlement that people have when it comes to anything creative too, where this thing came out of a void and people still feel the need to, you know, challenge it if it's not up to their expectations or if they just, if they get used to it being a certain way. 
Uh, so that's a strange thing that we have to contend with, is that people have some sense of entitlement. And that entitlement isn't just that people feel entitled to uh, to things that people create. They feel entitled to... They, they feel entitled to the fact that, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, people feel entitled to things that are created, but they also feel entitled to the absence of those things too. In the same way that somebody who goes up to me and says, I'm going to play you an Elliott Smith song, uh, I feel entitled to silence in that moment. I feel that I am entitled to silence, and there's this part of me that's like, well, who am I to say that person shouldn't do that? And I guess I can always leave. I guess I can always leave. I always know where the exit sign is. You know, my rules of going into any kind of building, any kind of room, a restaurant, a bar, anything, is I want my back to a wall, and I want to know where the exit is. That's just, that's what I need. Going into any place, I want to know, I, I like to know how to get out of here, and I want to see the room. There's nothing worse than when your back is exposed. There's nothing worse than when your back is exposed to a room. Because people will come up to you and they'll give you a back rub. Come whisper in your ear. I don't know what they'll do. Uh, I hate that feeling. I hate it. I'm entitled to, you know, I'm entitled to have to my back having my back to a wall. I'm entitled to an exit. And you are. You know, you really are entitled to an exit. And uh, I could get into, like, the whole dilemma of suicide and all of that here, too, where there's a part of me that's like, well, people have the right to leave. And it's, it's a tragedy, and everything leading up to that is a mess, and you want people to give deep consideration. Because there's this idea when people kill themselves that it's like, oh, they just didn't think hard enough. They didn't have the right perspective. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing. And it's like, who are you to say that? You know, sometimes people are just truly in a haze, and I'm not advocating suicide. I'm not saying it's okay, but like, I think the worst thing you can do when someone kills themselves is to be like, that was so selfish. They didn't think they, to, to see them as somehow lacking a perspective. And sometimes that's true. And you'll see that in like a suicide note and things like that, where it's like, oh, especially young people. I mean, I think about a guy who went to my high school, he was an acquaintance and uh, a couple friends of mine became friends with him, and he fell for this girl who was just like kind of a mess. I don't know. It was, you know, truly like eye of the beholder sort of stuff. And when she rejected him later, he killed himself, and he jumped off a bridge into Lake Washington, and he died. Uh, and it was weird because. It was very sad, you know, because I wasn't that close to him at all, and a couple of my friends had gotten to know him. They would smoke cigarettes with him, that kind of thing, and uh, it was just so weird. It was just like, man, like her, you know, her, like, man, that, you know, and obviously that's just a symptom, like her rejection of him was just a symptom uh, of something deeper going on in his life, because somebody who has their wiring correct isn't going to kill themselves uh, over just a girl in high school who everybody else honestly thinks is just like a dumb mess. And I feel really guilty saying that, not just because I'm talking about some girl in a high school who who knows what she was really like. You know, I just, I didn't know her very well at all. 
So I'm not even really knocking her, but just what I saw. It's like one of those things where it's just like, you killed yourself over her, man. But then it's also, that's a great example, too, of thinking I know what was going on in his head, thinking that I somehow, you know, that he somehow was missing perspective. Like, don't you see what she was really like? You know, like, how do I know what his perspective was? How do I know what he was truly thinking? How do I know what he had considered? You know, who he, his thinking might have been far more advanced than anything I'm capable of understanding, especially somebody who's going to go through with that. So who am I to say, like, oh, you did it, you killed yourself over her? But I think you can look at it and, and see where some people do kill themselves because they're caught up in this heated... Uh, I don't know. They're they're in this confused mess. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect to be talking about suicide in this episode, but, uh, you know, I talked about the idea of giving life as a creative act. Uh, so it's only natural that taking your own life would be the destructive side of that. Uh, so it, it is part of this conversation. But that's a great example, though, of, you know, where... I think sometimes, you know, people get into this funk because they think they need to be happy or they they need to experience euphoria and joy all the time. And, you know, uh, they see these motivational quotes about, you know, happiness and gratitude and all of that. And it doesn't resonate with them. It resonates with, you know, I mean, those kind of things don't generally resonate with men to begin with, in my experience, not just my own experience as a man, but, you know, just knowing men, those kind of things, those cliches don't resonate with us, even if it's true. They resonate with housewives who end their night with a glass of wine, you know, and feel, they feel, in the same way I feel guilty about doing a podcast, you know, those housewives who are like, ooh, mommy's being bad, having a glass of wine, better uh, post a meme about it, better wear a t-shirt that says, mommy needs her wine, Mommy, ooh, mommy's being bad. She's got a glass of wine. Uh, <laughs> wine moms, wine jokes. I love, I love a good wine joke from a middle-aged woman. Ooh, we're being bad. We split a bottle of wine between four women. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's like it's when people like they lose sight of happiness because they're convinced that they have to go straight from the abyss to heaven. It's like, how the fuck am I going to get out of this abyss and get to heaven? That's a, that's a climb. I might as well just, just stay here. I might as well just kill myself. You know, that's the way some people think because they don't realize that, you know, they can actually achieve, if you even want to call it that, some sort of balance by letting go of, of that you know, big thing up ahead. And I don't know, it's always ridiculous to me when people say like, oh, my five-year plan. I mean, that's very practical and there's a reason why those people are successful. Because uh, when you come up with a five-year plan, you create a, a mantra for yourself. You know, I know I talk about Napoleon Hill sometimes, at least I have, where, you know, his Think and Grow Rich book is actually a, a much deeper book than that. And sometimes you have to market something toward the common people, like think and grow rich, when really you're talking about deeper concepts that bleed into, you know, the occult, spirituality, religion, all of this, you know, and one thing he talks about there is, you know, when someone looks in the mirror every morning, when they write down their goals, and when they look in the mirror, and they repeat those over and over again, and how those get imprinted on your subconscious, and therefore your actual behavior starts to mirror, uh, or your behavior starts to 
work toward that goal without you even knowing it because that goal is such a core part of your subconscious and it became a part of your subconscious through repetition, uh, sometimes verbalizing it out loud or putting it on paper. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why sigil magic involves a physical representation. Uh, you know, bringing things into reality actually can impact your subconscious and, and ingrain something into your subconscious, and therefore your behavior starts to reflect that. Um, and I think about people I know in my generation in particular who do this whole, like, fuck my life, fuck my life uh, thing, and then they're like, oh, I'm a piece of shit, I'm garbage, nihilism. And they say that over and over again, and it's kind of like, I'm just being self-deprecating and real, and you know, I, I don't want to be too proud. I, I don't want people to think that I'm too high on myself, and I'm really not because I'm depressed, so I'm just going to repeat this shitty thing about myself and the world over and over again, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to continue to be a piece of shit. You're actually going to get worse, probably. You're probably going to get worse because you've completely eliminated any kind of like the possibility of ascension. You've eliminated the possibility of ascension from your life because you're repeating self-damaging, self-restricting garbage. And it is garbage. And uh, it doesn't make people – people don't look at someone doing that and go, oh, look at how humble that person is. They're calling themselves a piece of shit all the time. It's like they see that and they're like, ugh. And, and you know, look at what you're creating. You know, and that's a great example of, you know, where the lines get blurred between creativity and destruction, where it's like you're creating something, but what you're creating is actually a destructive force in your life, and it's going to ruin the possibility of any happiness or even neutrality. You're just going to, you know, be stuck in the mud. Um, but you also don't want to be, like, too high on yourself. And when you see somebody who's just always like, oh, I, I'm... Look at my workout, you know, it's like, oh, I, you, look at what I did today, you know, and, and that's something I struggle with. I'm a proud person. I'm Leo rising. I'm a Leo, ri I'm a Capricorn, so I'm a, but I'm also a Leo rising, which means uh, that I, what I show to the world is a, a, a sense of pride because, you know, lions and pride, ravens and murder, no, crows and murder. Uh, Ravens have a cool group name too. I, I have to look it up. This is my. I'm gonna allow myself one uh, one look up per episode, and I very rarely use it. But uh, Ravens are called uh, an unkindness. Actually, they have. It says a group of ravens is called an unkindness, a treachery, or a conspiracy. That's like. Uh, <laughs> it's, how dare they how dare they call uh, how dare they associate ravens solely with such negative words in my experience ravens are pretty cool I like their little croak you can always tell when you hear a raven because it's like this uh, I don't know it's like this resonant little croak it's not like a caw like a crow it's a croak. This croak that's what I call a fuck all this treachery conspiracy unkindness of ravens shit. I'm going to call a group of ravens a croak of ravens. It's a croak of ravens. Here you can see a croak of ravens. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, that idea, what was I talking about? Uh, um, 
Well, yeah, just, you know, when you know somebody who's just repeating something very negative about themselves over and over, and there's this aspect of, you know, I'm just speaking the truth about myself, I'm a piece of shit, uh, you know, blah, 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 and it just becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. They're ingraining that in their subconscious, and it, it's, it sucks to see, and you can't help them. Because, I mean, that's the other thing, too, about the whole the dilemma between creativity and destruction is sometimes you want to help people, and so you... Uh, which is very egotistical, you know, I, I'm the one who can help. Even though it's seen as the, you know, the least egotistical thing you can do, altruism, helping people, donating your time, we all know there's a lot of ego to charity. There's a reason why these billionaires donate money to charity and get things named after them and get all this recognition, because it's very easy to help people without getting recognition. It's very easy to do it, uh, in theory. Uh, but there's, people want to recognize someone who does that, and then people who do it also want some form of recognition. And so when you're helping somebody, even if it's just somebody in your personal life, uh, there's this element of like, I'm, I'm going to save them. I'm going to help them. And who are, you know, I'm still figuring shit out. Who am I to think that I could help somebody? Uh, but at the same time, deciding not to help people. You don't want to make a deliberate decision not to help people. So you're always dealing with these, this cognitive dissonance. You're always dealing with this, um, I'm trying to think of the term, this double bind, it's a double bind, and it's something you see in a lot of Eastern philosophy where it's like, oh, well, I have to, I have to spend a lot of time contending with these things, and just when I think the thing on my right side is the thing on my right side, I find out it's actually the thing on my left side, and the left side's the thing on my right side, but it's not even that fixed, and there's a little bit of left to my right side and there's a little bit of right to my left side and you end up with this like kind of weird double bind this cognitive dissonance and as i've said before that in my opinion is actually where the true creative creativity emerges from that's where the new ideas come from and not that i truly believe in new ideas you know the bible itself says there's nothing new under the sun that was the funniest moment like <laughs> Uh, reading the Bible and actually seeing that the Bible itself says there's nothing new under the sun. I'm like, perfect. Nobody ever told me it says that in the Bible. It, it, it literally says that phrase. And, and to know that, that, that people were saying that even then. The people have, there's not only nothing new under the sun, but people have been repeating that exact phrase in different forms, you know, since the Bible, you know? Uh, so that's just funny. Uh, but you, you find out that there's this double bind and you think, oh, if there's any cognitive dissonance to my thinking, it means I've got to give one idea up. It's almost like what I'm talking about with creativity and destruction. Oh, I, I'd like to create more than I destroy, so I have to give destruction up. Well, that's a good way of m turning your creativity into something destructive. That's a good way of losing perspective because having two conflicting ideas is actually what keeps you in balance and gives you the perspective you need. Uh, and that's what allows you to break even, which in the end is my goal in life, my 80-year plan. I don't have a five-year plan. I have an 80-year plan, and I think if I can break even between creativity and destruction, if I can break even between good and bad, and not to say that that means falling into some gray area or staying in some neutral area. But if I feel like I can just simply break even, that is good enough for me.
This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free